Okay, so my message today is on is on the love of God. For God so loved the world. <clears throat> and I'd like to open with a let's open with a prayer. Lord our Father, we thank you for this for your word which we've already received and heard. Lord, we thank you for what you've given. Lord, that you would work your life and your will in our lives, Lord, that you would show us your heart, that you help us, Lord, to see, to walk in humility, to see in ourselves these failures and not to judge others for the faults in them. Lord, we pray for your grace this morning. We pray for your presence. We pray for an anointing for your spirit over this uh, time here, over us as we're here together. We pray that your word would be spoken, that you would come through and, and speak to our lives in each and every one of us. <clears throat> Lord, bless this time here and the words that I speak. May you receive glory. May you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. For God so loved the world. <clears throat> I want to start with a verse that we all know uh, in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is a verse we all know. It's probably the best known verse in all of Scripture, in all the Bible. So, <laughs> I want to explore um, this, this concept, this verse, this thought, that God so loved the world. And when you hear that verse, what do you hear? It, it has two parts. It kind of has two parts. One is about the character of God, and the other one is about the salvation of mankind. And both are, are beautiful truths. But this morning I want to ponder, I want us to ponder the, the part that points to the character of God. How much did God love the world? How much does He love this world? And we know it so much that He gave His only begotten Son. God loved this world so much that He gave His only begotten Son to die for this world. What did He love about this world? Yes, it's a beautiful world. We can all, we can all marvel at the beauty of nature, at the colors of fall, the, the glitter in winter, the the new life of spring and the beauty of summer, we, we, the hills, the mountains, all of nature, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful world. But I don't think that's the world that, that this verse is talking about. God could recreate that all in a few days. He did it once, He could do it again. It's not the natural beauty of the world. <clears throat> I 
On day six of the creation week, God created mankind. And as he created man, I see man that he was, man was the masterpiece of his creation. It was the pinnacle, it was the, the cherry on top, if you will. It says, God made man in his image. We don't, we don't know exactly what that means, that God made man in his image. We can only guess. Personally, um, I think it might be more practical than we think. Um, we all might have a different take on this. But, but then God isn't limited to any body. He isn't limited to any form. But the, but the scripture calls Adam the son of God. It seems to me that God created man somewhat like, like his sons and his daughters. When it says in his image, I think it's along those lines. And in the same way that, that we see ourselves sometimes in our sons and daughters, there's attributes that God sees in, in us. There's a connection there. There's a special connection there that's beyond a created being that's completely different than yourself. <clears throat> and there's certainly a strong argument in Scripture that God is, God is a father. That's longing for his children. And he's longing, he's like a father that's longing for a relationship with his children, with his sons and daughters. The same way that we see our children, it might be the same way God has a heart for all mankind, that he has a heart for us, that he has a heart to have the relationship and a connection. <clears throat> so when, when God made man, he created a creature that has reason, that had logic, creativity. He gave him the freedom to choose, the freedom of choice to decide what he wants to do, to, do, to decide if he wants to be, if, he want, if, if we want to love God, if we want to follow him. They, he, he created a, a, a creature to love him and to, to be with him and to just be one with him, to be, to be friends, to fellowship, to be together. But in giving him this choice, it's, it's, uh, it came with a big risk for God. And the risk was that this, that his beloved creation would reject him and all that he offered. There was that risk. <clears throat> but he created a man, he created Adam as a, as a being with intelligence, with, with reason. And, and there's a, just a, smart, a short... Um, 
scripture, I want to take out the Genesis 2.18 that struck me. Um, it's just a small picture of how God created Adam to be creative and intelligent. And uh, Genesis 2.18, And God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So God didn't give this, he made all this creation and he didn't give them names. He brought them to Adam and he said, okay, Adam, what do you want to name this one? And it, it just struck me like a father would do with his son, giving him that, just giving him that opportunity to do that. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, <clears throat> there was not found a helpmeet for him. And I don't want to go into that, but there's that... And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And you, you can just see, I just see God stepping back and watching Adam and, and seeing and, and just enjoying him do that. Watching him do that. To, to explore his creativity, to explore uh, what, what, what he would do with that. And I don't know if I don't know if that speaks to you, but <clears throat> it was the crown of his creation. And whatever Adam named those creatures, named those animals, that was their name. <clears throat> but then, as we go on, we all know the story that uh, Adam and Eve ultimately did reject what God had given them. And it's the story of the fall of man. And they chose to believe a deceptive promise of knowledge. They chose, they, they allowed themselves to be deceived. They believed the lie that God was withholding great things from them. <clears throat> And they chose the lust of the flesh, the lust of the spirit, and the pride of life over their God and Creator. But the amazing thing is, is that God looked at His creation and His love for Adam and Eve didn't disappear. It didn't go away. If we look at God and we picture who He is, we're like, isn't God like an artist? If the painting messes up, you just take it and crumple it up and throw it away and you start a new one. But God had invested something. He'd invested something in this creation that he'd done in no other. It wasn't like a herd of animals. It was, it was like his son, his sons and his daughters. 
And his love continued, his love for mankind continued even after they rejected him. Throughout the Old Testament, we can see how God was pursuing his people, his children. Wanting and waiting for them to return to him. And how much did God love mankind? How much did he love his people? Did he love this creation? So much. So much that he finally gave his only son. And God did come close to giving up. He did come close to crumpling up everything and throwing it away. I think that did come close a couple of times, and we have accounts of that in Scripture. But finally, he gave the best he had to give for mankind. And I want to take a parable now out of Luke 20. Verse 9, starting at verse 9. And Jesus, here he's speaking with the Pharisees. And he began to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. And he let, and he let it forth to husbandmen. And he went into a far country for a long time. And the, the issue that Jesus is addressing with this parable is that the Pharisees and the, the spiritual leaders of the time were rejecting him. They were rejecting him. They were, uh, they were not accepting his teachings. They were not accepting who he said he was. <clears throat> and at the season, and at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and entreated him shamefully, and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence my son when they see him. Reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that, and the, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And here we, we have a picture. We have this, um, this parable of this husbandman who invested in a vineyard, and he built it up. And he gave it over to husbandmen. And he tried and tried again to send messengers to bring them back to him. To bring them the fruit. To bring them what he was due. And they rejected them again. Until finally he sent his son. He gave his son. And they rejected him too. Not only that, they killed him. <clears throat> and Jesus asks, um, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? And it says, He shall come and destroy those husbandmen and shall give their vineyard unto others. 
And you know that's that's probably our our right will do. <clears throat> and that the 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 reality that we as as this fallen creation we never deserve the mercy that he showed us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For God so loved the world, and how much did he love this world? So my question again, what is it about this world? that God loved. It was the people. It's His people. He loved the people of this world like His children. And He still loves them. And His heart is that every one of them would be saved. And the question I want to ask is, in God's economy, what matters? What matters in God's economy, in God's eyes? What is the greatest value? You know, in our economy, in the economies of the world, um, there is what's called the gold standard. And the gold standard used to be, or it is, that every dollar a country would print, they'd have to have backed up with, with gold. So for every dollar they printed, they had to have a dollar's value worth of gold somewhere stocked up to back that up. And that would tell us that this dollar is worth so much. It's worth this amount of gold. And that gave the dollar its strength. That gives the, gives the economy its trading power, its authority. That where where you can take a dollar here and you can take it 200 miles from here and get the same amount from for it. So in God's economy, and, and that makes, um, so in the economies of the world, gold and silver are some of the most valuable commodities. They're the things that end up mattering most. You know, in poor countries, it becomes things like uh, food, becomes the most valuable commodity. Gold buys food, so that makes gold more power, more more valuable. So those uh, that's in so in 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 our economy, we know what the valuable things are. You know, we know in our economy, uh, money's we need money. We know how to get it, and we go about it as efficiently as we can. But in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, what is the most valued commodity? What is the most important thing in the kingdom of God? In other words, in eternity, what will matter? That's another way of, of finding this, this answer. What are the things that will matter in eternity?
When this world's gone, what will matter? It's the people. This whole, this whole world, in this whole world, the whole creation, the whole story of Scripture, if we look at it all, it's about man's relationship with God and the conflict that sin causes and how God is trying to draw and redeem a people for himself, to bring them to himself, it's about people. You know, we all, we all want to do great things. We all want to do things, one or two things at least, that people will remember. Um, and so many times, I think one of the greatest things we can do for eternity I sit down with a brother or a sister or a friend and ask them how they're really doing. How it's really going. And it's a bit of a fearful thing to do if we don't practice it. It's not something we're usually comfortable talking about. But we should be. We should be. We, uh, we all tend to get carried away with, uh, with, the, with the cares of life, with some of the things that God doesn't really care about so much. And sometimes even there's, there's things that, that God does care about, but, but they're not His highest priority. God does care about the little things in our life, yes. But ultimately, God's heart is after His people. After people. <clears throat> so there's a... In, in our lives, there's things that seem important to us. And there's things that, there's the things that are, that are really important to God, that God is really after. And one of the examples I want to I take today, this morning, is, is the story of uh, how the temple came into being. You know, God's original model, the one He designed, the one He, he made, was the tabernacle the center, the, the original place of worship that God came up with. It was the tabernacle. On Mount Sinai, he told Moses, this is exactly how I want it. This is exactly the materials you, you, you'll, you'll use. And he gave him everything down to the detail. This is going to be the center. This is how I want my people to worship me. And, and they built a tabernacle in the wilderness exactly by God's design. And God said to, to Moses, make sure that you make it, make everything exactly like I told you. And I'm sure he did. 
I'm sure Moses did. He was a brilliant man. God had gifted people for that purpose. And they built it. <clears throat> they built this tabernacle. And, and there it was. And I want you to picture the tabernacle. So if you looked at the tabernacle, what did you see? It, it wasn't much to look at. What was the outside covering? What was the, what did you, how would you see from the outside? It was covered in badger skins, right? So it was a badger skin covered tent of sorts. And there was a linen fence. There, was a, a, there were pillars around it with, uh, with linen curtains all around it. And that was God's design. It wasn't flashy. You didn't see much, much gold. You didn't see much glitter. Um, there was a bronze altar out front. Um, it seems to me... Maybe just a little shabby for the creator of all the universe. Um, and it, it size, how big it was about the size of uh, maybe one of our houses, except probably not as high. One of our dwelling places, 30 by 60. Probably about half the size of this room. The tabernacle, the building itself. And uh, so, so you think about that, and, and this was God's design. This was, uh, this was what it's, this is how, how people were supposed to come to him and worship him. So my question is, what's, where, was, where was it, what was it all about? And the answer, I believe, is in, in, inside it. What was on the inside? On the outside, it wasn't much to look at. But on the inside, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And there was a mercy seat. And that was the place where God would come. And he would meet mankind. And in there, he spoke to Moses. Like we speak to each other. And that was the incredible power of it. That was that was the beauty of it. It wasn't even though it was it was beautifully made. It was it was it had ornate decorations. But the beauty of it was the holy of holies. That God came that God wanted to meet and to connect with mankind. <clears throat> in Acts, um, so I want to take a few verses out of Acts 7, verse 44. It speaks about the tabernacle. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. 
whom God drove out before the face of our fathers <clears throat> onto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, say the prophets. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will we build ye, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not mine hand made these things? So what house would we build the Lord our God? You know, King David woke up one morning and he said, I want to build the Lord a house. I want to build a house for God. He was living in a very fine temple, a very fine palace. And he looked at the tabernacle and maybe it was looking a little old already. And he was thinking, we should do better. That's, that's not good enough. We should build a temple to worship him in, a glorious temple. God replied to David, I, I never asked for a temple. I never asked for a great, glorious place of worship. But in more or less words, if you want to, that's good. You're, I'll let your son do it. I'll let Solomon build me a temple. And uh, God was honored at the heart of David that he wanted to please Please God. He wanted to please Him. So Solomon built the temple. It was gloriously beautiful. We read of it. Um, perfect workmanship. Carvings. Um, the design, embroidery. Endless gold and silver. But how do we build a house that will carry the Lord our God? And you know, God blessed his house. But what set apart the temple? You know, if we, if we see models of the temple, it's Solomon's temple was about half the size of the one that Herod built later, the time of Jesus. Um, and it was very detailed, very beautiful, and it, it, it was beyond its time. But can that hold? Is that, is, that a, is that a sufficient house for the king of kings? God said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will, we be, will you build me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? And it's like, that's not, really, that's not what God is after. That wasn't the heart of God to have a beautiful temple. And to have people come there to that temple and now we're going to worship God. To have a place that was perfect and immaculate and decked out with gold and had high pillars and, and beautiful ornate carvings and embroidery and, and curtains from very rare materials that, were, that had gold thread in them. Those things are all beautiful and great. But it wasn't really what God wanted. It wasn't what God was after. God was okay with the tabernacle serving that purpose. Because God's heart has always been after the people. It wasn't about a place. It wasn't about a temple. <clears throat> God dwells in temples who dwells not in temples made with hands, 
with hand. <clears throat> so um, if you, in Acts 17, verse 22, I want to take a few verses. And this is Paul when he's at, uh, I'm not sure, Mars Hill, Rome. Is that in Rome? No. Athens, yes. So when Paul was in Athens, he went to Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was apparently a place where they had all these idols for all these different gods. And Paul walked around there, and then he rose up to speak. And Paul stood, uh, Acts 17, verse 22, And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions, and I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So with all their gods there, it seems to me like just in case they missed a few, they put up an altar to the unknown God. Because we don't want to offend any gods. Gods are powerful. And there was this altar to the unknown God. They didn't know who he was, but they were pretty sure there's one out there that they missed and that they probably offended. Um, so they, they had an altar there. But they didn't know who he was. <clears throat> Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, I declare unto you. And here Paul said, I'm going to declare to you the God that you don't know about. God that made the world and all things therein. Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelling not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he need anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and thing and all things, and hath made one of, of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. And he's describing God. And he says, this is the one from whom all life, he created all life, he created all every being. Everything on this earth is from him. Every nation he created out of one offspring. Every, every nation of humans. And he says that they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that, God, that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone or graven by... <clears throat> By art and man's device. The times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commanded all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man Jesus whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men. In that he raiseth him from the dead. And here he brings, uh, brings the message. That the time is here. <clears throat> that there's coming a day 
when the things we see, the things around us, those things many of us have pursued and worked for all our lives, they'll disappear. Some things will remain. Very few things will remain. There's coming that day when all these things will disappear. Even the temple, it disappeared. It wasn't an eternal place. It was just a picture of God's desire to dwell with man. Of God's desire to be with his people. If we look at our, the life of our Lord Jesus, he was the son of a carpenter. And what did Jesus ever build that's still here today? Is there a palace he designed? Is there a house that he built? Is there a table or maybe a rocking chair that he built? Well, maybe. Not as far as we know. Is there a carving he made? A masterpiece left behind for us to remember him by. Yes, there is a masterpiece. He did create a masterpiece. And Jesus took 12 average men and he walked with them. He had some women with him too. And he loved them. And he worked through difficulties with them. And he shared his life with them. And he exhorted them and encouraged them and even rebuked them when it was necessary. And he did all that, not only with his 12 disciples, but with everyone he met. Everyone he met, he pursued the people. He cared for the people. That was his heart. That's why he was here. Sure, he had to have his daily food. He had to have clothes. He had to have shelter. He had to have it. He couldn't have made it without it. Those things were necessary in this world. <clears throat> but he invested in people with everyone he met, with the successful, the poor, the great, and the not-so-great, the popular ones, and those that were rejected by society. See, it's not for us to judge people at first glance. If we look at people and we write them off, we're making a grave mistake. That's wrong. Jesus said, don't judge. So you won't be judged. We're supposed to be like Christ. Our calling is to be like Christ to everyone we meet. So amen. And may we learn to dig for the gold and the diamonds of God's economy.
I think first to see the people, to see the people we around us, to see the elderly, the children, the strangers, even those we're used to. And I want to say especially those we're used to and we take for granted in our lives. The people we interact with, every person that we cross paths with, see them as the gold, the diamonds, the, the most precious commodity. The thing we can invest in, in this world, and carry into eternity. You know, like Brother Gordon used to say, our human relations, relationships, are one of the few things, few things we'll be able to take with us in eternity. And it's so true. And one of the things I, I appreciated the opening in that if, if we can remember, if we can rem certainly remember who we would be without him, if we can see that, that we are all Equally, we're all equally broken. We're all equally lost. We're all completely lost without him. And each one of us would be lost without his grace, without his mercy in our lives. So may God give us the grace to see people like Jesus did. To serve people like Jesus did. To love people like Jesus did. To be a blessing to people like he did. And to shine our lights in this world. So amen. May God bless you.